0: I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 4th, 2018. Coming up, Volume 2 of the 4th National Assessment on Climate Change was released on the day after Thanksgiving. The findings are stark. According to Volume 1, it is already too late to prevent major long-term effects of climate change. The scientific community has now turned to predicting and quantifying these effects and how human civilization can respond to mitigate what might be catastrophic results. Today, we have with us in the studio one of the co-authors of the chapter on transportation, Professor Paul Chinowski of the CU Department of Civil Engineering. Last week, the New York Times quoted him as saying, I'm watching these arguments between politicians and scientists, but I'm on the ground with public works officials who say that argument's irrelevant. We'll hear him elaborate on the findings of the report and his frustration at the lack of a serious response by the federal government. But first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Environmental atomic or I'm sorry, experimental atomic clocks at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology have achieved three new performance records now ticking precisely enough to not only improve timekeeping and navigation, but also detect faint signals from gravity, the early universe, and perhaps even dark matter. The clocks each trap a thousand ytterbian atoms in an optical lattice, grids made of laser beams. The atoms tick by vibrating or switching between two energy levels. By comparing two independent clocks... NIST physicists achieved record performance in three important measures, systematic uncertainty, stability, and reproducibility. The element ytterbium is the 70th on the periodic table, symbol YB, and is part of the lanthanide series. The record-breaking performances were published online in the journal Nature on November 28th. Systematic uncertainty is a measure of how well the clocks represent the natural vibrations or frequency of the atoms. On that score, uh, the clocks' rate of the clocks matched the natural frequency of ytterbium atoms with an error of 1.4 in 10 to the 18th, or about one billionth of one billionth. Stability is a measure of how much the clock's frequency change over a specified time interval. Here, the clocks drifted 3.2 parts in one in 10 to the 19th parts over the course of a day. And finally, reproducibility, or how closely the two clocks tick at the same frequency. Ten comparisons showed the clocks differed by less than one part in 10 to the 18th. Again, that is less than one billionth of one billionth. Breaking records in all three is considered the royal flush of performance in clocks, according to NIST physicist Andrew Ludlow, the leader of the project but it is especially reproducibility that he considers the single most important result. At this point, the clocks are so precise that they can be used as instruments to refine our knowledge of the gravitational model of the Earth by being able to measure how that gravity affects the passage of time. That gravity affects the passage of time as a result of Einstein's general theory of relativity, Listeners who saw the science fiction movie Interstellar may recall the dramatic effect of the difference in passage of time for characters near a black hole. Here on Earth, the phenomenon still exists, but of course is much, much smaller. These new clocks are so precise that they can spot inaccuracies in our current estimates of the gravitational field at points in, on, and around the Earth. Such values, calculated in a science known as geodesy, a study of the shape and form of the Earth. Our current best models of Earth's gravitational field are based on measurements of tides. These new clocks are so precise they could be used to improve the overall model of Earth's gravitational field. This evening at Gunbarrel Brewery, they serve up Science on Tap, a casual forum for science enthusiasts to gather together and hear accessible presentations given by local researchers and experts in their fields. This evening, the topic is, Extinction Isn't Always Final, The Amazing Rediscoveries of Colorado Native Trout. The talk is given by Dr. Kevin Rogers, aquatics research scientist with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The amazing talk will explore the recent flurry of research using both molecular methods as well as visual characteristics that suggest a richer diversity in our native cutthroat trout than was previously recognized. A thorough investigation of DNA from extant trout, as well as specimens collected as far back as the 1880s, sheds new light on our understanding of the lineage of trout that exists currently. A couple notable species, the San Juan cutthroat and the Yellowfin cutthroat, both of which were believed to be extinct, have also been rediscovered only recently. The event is this evening at the Gun Barrel Brewery and is free and open to the public, We suggest getting tickets in advance, though, because seating is limited. This can be done through the Gun Barrel Brewery website or the Science on Tap Facebook page. The talk starts shortly after 7 p.m. when those who arrive without tickets have an opportunity to be seated if seats are available. For those who do have tickets, doors open at 6.30 and getting there early gives you time to grab food and a drink and get a good seat. Just over 10 days ago, on what is sometimes called Black Friday, the White House released Volume 2 of the 4th National Climate Assessment. We are fortunate to have with us in the studio a co-author of one of the chapters on that report, Dr. Paul Chinowski, professor at the CU Boulder School of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering. Dr. Chanowski is co-author of Chapter 12, which covers the impact and cost on transportation infrastructure. We'll discuss the findings of the report in general, as well as some details of the science on the chapter which he co-authored. Professor Chenowsky, welcome to How on Earth, and thank you for coming down to the KGNU studios this morning to
1: talk with us. Thank you, Chip. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, you know, in the media, this report is sometimes called the White House Report on Climate Change, uh, you know, which can befuddle some of the people out there, uh, given the current attitude of the occupant of the White House on uh, the believability of, of human-induced climate change. Um, and, of course, the term I just used in the introduction is quite generic, the National Assessment on Climate Change. So before we get into it, uh, just give us some background on the report itself. What is the purpose or mission of the report, and what agencies are doing it, uh, and with what resources?
1: So that's a great question. One of the The report is a congressionally mandated report. It has to come out at least uh, every four years, and this is the fourth time it's been released. It comes out uh, this time in two volumes. Volume one was really about the background science about climate change, and volume two, uh, the one that was just released, was about the impacts, was what it focused on. It covers a broad range of agencies across the government. Thirteen different agencies are involved with it. It's called the White House report because it is officially delivered by the executive branch. But the White House has a minimal amount of actual involvement. It's basically agencies. NOAA is one of the lead agencies. But depending on the chapter, it can go across the board. Department of Transportation, uh, you get Interior Department. There's a broad range of agencies, which means a lot of different people giving comments and looking at what's done and giving, giving advice to the authors at different points and how to coordinate everything.
0: So it must take quite a bit of logistical work to get coordination among all those agencies. Uh, I noted that the title is the fourth report. How long does it take to get one of these reports together?
1: So it takes about two years of effort to put it together from the time the different teams are put together for the different chapters, the experts are brought on board. It's about a year of really in-depth writing and research on everything, and then about almost a year of doing edits and answering questions. So Every single sentence that's in the report has to have backup of some type of published literature. So we can't just editorialize and make it up as we go. So it's a very, very in-depth process of just making sure everything there can be verified and backed up.
0: So I might presume then that the the chapter that you co-authored on transportation uh, probably was organized by the Department of Transportation. Is that true?
1: it was it had leadership from the Department of transportation uh everything eventually goes back to the um to NOAA and their oversight, but ours had primary leadership from Department of transportation yes
0: well, then let me ask you this how how does one get chosen to be a, a co-author of this report how and then specifically how did you get involved
1: yeah, that's a great question. I get asked that a lot of how do people get involved in this there's 300 people that are involved in writing it, how are they selected? And primarily, it comes from people who have background in either doing research, which is where I got involved. I've been involved in doing impacts on transportation for about 12 years now and have done quite a bit of writing. I've worked in over 50 countries around the world doing this. So I was brought on for my research expertise. But we had engineers who have done worked in communities, New York, uh, other places like that, who have on-the-ground practical, we have to figure out how to do this in a budget and policy-wise. And then we also have people who come in from uh research centers government research centers so we had someone from the trans- transportation research center so we try the goal is to get people from multiple perspectives who all have quite a track record of working on the area that they're writing about
0: and i understand that the report is available online and, and so those listeners that you know feel they really want to get detailed uh understanding of what was issued uh that is available at uh, globalchange.gov?
1: Correct, and so they can get into it. I, I do recommend that everybody at least read the summary of the report. You don't have to necessarily go through all 1,600 pages of the report, but if you read the summary of the report, it gives you a really good idea of the overall impact that we're talking about and how, uh, how pervasive this problem is in a very short period of time.
0: Uh, well, that's an excellent segue. Uh, a little later on the program, we'll get in specifically into the science behind the chapter you wrote. But before we do that, I'd uh, ask you to give a brief executive summary of the overall report. What were the findings? Do you feel I overstated things in my introduction?
1: <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I, I don't think we can overstate it, the findings at all, no matter how much we try. If you really look at what are the takeaways that everyone should take— Well, the first one is climate change impacts are happening today, right? We get very caught up with the abstract of talking about what's going to happen in 2050, 2080, or 2100. What this report really says is if you go outside today, there are things happening that we don't necessarily attribute to climate change in everyday conversation, but it's already an effect of it. So takeaway number one, climate change is today takeaway number two, this is going to cost money to move to adaptation. Mitigation's great. Mitigation where we talk about how we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that's still a very important part. But we've really passed the point of mitigation solving everything. We have to focus on adaptation. So the report really says adaptation now has to become part of the conversation and we're going to have to pay for it in some way. So, those are two really key takeaways. And I'd say the third one is if you don't think that climate change is affecting you, it's either on the way or it's affecting you and you're not even knowing it because it's a very subtle thing already. But there's nobody that's going to be essentially passed over from having effects.
0: So yeah, a couple of the key words that I hear used by the scientific community in response to this issue is adaptation and resiliency. Uh, Give me a a scientist or an engineer's uh, brief explanation of what those terms are
1: about. So adaptation is really about designing for the future, is what I the way I I put it. So historically, when we design a house or a road or anything that we work with, we design based on historic information. All those things. Every time the weather person comes on the radio or TV or in the newspaper, we keep track of those records. And when we think about what we're going to design for in the future, how much air conditioning or heating in a building, what the temperatures a road is, we look. At the past. Adaptation is saying things are going to change in the future and we have to rethink how we design things. Resilience is all about the ability to recover. Take the floods in Boulder. The faster you can recover from it because you've prepared for it, the more resilient you are. So the idea here is if we focused on adaptation, then if changes occur, we can be more resilient and bounce back faster.
0: Well, let me ask you a question then on your particular expertise, which is uh, civil engineering and transportation. Uh, There's often a debate when we come up with materials and designs about using classic natural materials because of the low impact on the environment, but then there is a counter-argument that newly developed synthetic materials uh, are lighter and stronger and last longer. Uh, How do you chime in on that? Do you feel that... um, that in general we should try to return to more natural materials, or is that just a sort of romantic kind of thinking?
1: Well, the number one concern always has to be safety, right? Let's put that out up up front. Now, what we should use, sure, we should try and use natural materials. To a certain extent, when it comes to building, there is some limitation as to what we can do and there's also we do so much building we don't want to deplete natural resources we don't want to repeat what happened in the 1800s with everyone uh, cutting down forests to use wood so there is we do need to balance that For transportation, for roads and bridges, railroads, what we really want to do is use materials that are long-lasting, have as minimal impact on the environment as possible, and provide the safety. So I'm kind of in the middle on this in terms of what I – my focus is always – let's make sure we're designing safely and let's make sure that we're designing something that can last, that we don't want to, the infrastructure should not be part of the throwaway economy where we go, well, in five years, we'll try it again. We're building things that are going to last 20, 30, 50 years, and that should always be at the forefront. Whatever we're going to build, let's use a material, whether it's stone, natural like that, or steel, something that's going to last. That, that is the critical part.
0: Do you have a realistic vision for a transportation infrastructure that looks significantly different than the one we have today? Something like monorails?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think we we as a country have this culture that we like our privacy and transportation. Uh, And it's interesting, having lived on the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, there's quite a difference. In the East Coast, there was nothing like getting on a train for a half hour and going to work. It was a part of your life. On the West Coast, that half hour spent in the car, sitting there in traffic on the freeway. But the future is going to have to change. We're going to have to focus much more on public transportation. I think that We're going to have to embrace light rail much more. Um, But it's got to be convenience. People love convenience. They like sitting, whatever they're doing, as long as they can read their paper and have their coffee and have the choice to talk to somebody or not. Uh, But I think it's going to have to be faster. It's going to have to be more convenient. And most of all, it's going to be where does it end? What people don't want is to have a central point where then they have to walk a mile and a half to get to the office. That never works. So convenience, network, but it's going to look different. We're going to reduce the number of cars. We have no choice.
0: If you're just joining us, you are listening to Professor Paul Chanowski. He is from CU and he's a professor of environmental Design in the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at CU. We're discussing uh, the results of the recently released Fourth National Climate Assessment. Assessment. Since this is How on Earth, KGNU Science Show, uh, uh, Professor Chenowski, I do want to get a little, a little bit into the details of the science of uh what it is you did in in your chapter so you discuss and you try to measure the impact of climate change on transportation and its infrastructure what is the science of that how does one even do that
1: Yeah. it's So let's start off by saying there's a lot of people who look at a lot of different elements. And I'm going to try and break this down to something that's a couple of things that are really relatable to the individual so that they can uh, relate to it. The first one is let's take railroads. Our railroads are probably the most sensitive piece of our infrastructure to climate change. So what most people don't realize is that as it gets hotter... Rails can actually warp if you keep putting heavy train cars on them. So, the hotter it gets, we either have to slow down trains or we have to stop running altogether. Uh, how do we put that into perspective? Well, the easy way, rule of thumb to always think about it is once you hit about 95 degrees, you better start slowing those trains down, and it can be 20% to 50% to even full stop. And we see that uh, in the East Coast already. we already seeing it in the Southwest. So they actually look like when they talk about ribbons of steel. Now imagine taking a ribbon and giving it a shake so it has all kinds of curves in it. That's what can happen to rail. Now, where that impacts each person is the cars that are delivered across country, appliances, uh, coal, anything that's heavy goes by rail. So that impacts us by slowing down what we what we receive in goods. It if you're taking passenger rail, passenger rail takes uh, second priority to freight, so that's going to slow down, delay your travel. But every uh, every department store you go to really relies on railroads, and so the ability to get goods can be impacted. The other thing, let's talk about roads. How is roads, how how do we calculate what the, the impact is? Well, the easiest thing to think about is we drive to work, we have potholes, we have cracks. It costs money to fill those and resurface. We typically do that anywhere seven years, 10 years, depending on where we live, what it's made of. There's a cost to do that. It's normal maintenance that we budget for. Well, when it gets hotter, uh, asphalt gets softer. Think Hmm. of a really hot day. You go out and the road just feels squishy at times.
0: I remember as a child running around in my bare feet uh, in Florida.
1: Yep, absolutely. Going out on the playground, and it's like, it just feels different, right? Yeah. That's because asphalt's actually designed to handle a very narrow band of hot weather. Well, it gets really hot, it gets soft like that, and you, then you run trucks and cars over it, it starts breaking it down, it cracks, you get more potholes. Well... That creates more cost. So what we're able to do from a science perspective is we know what these different thresholds are. And we look forward, we look at the climate models, and we say, okay, we're projecting these kind of temperatures. We know from experience and documented records how quickly roads start to degrade and when you have to resurface them. And we're able to calculate, oh, instead of seven years, you're going to have to either have this much more repair or resurface earlier. You put that together and you start getting hundreds of millions of dollars really fast.
0: Yeah, we've um, just got got a few minutes left in this interview, Um, and that actually is a perfect segue to uh, my next question, which is, even if you were to take climate change out of the equation, there are many people that are sort of critical of the direction of the U.S. federal government that we have gotten out of the business of the great public works. It has been 75 years since uh, the Great Deals Public Works Administration uh, ceased operation, and many public infrastructure artifacts such as bridges, those were designed to last about 75 years. And so regardless of whether there is climate change, uh, there's issues of just uh, neglect of maintenance and natural aging. When you did your research, how do you try to tease out uh, the differences, the effects that are specifically due to to climate change, as opposed to those that result from uh, our aging infrastructure?
1: Absolutely. We age the infrastructure in the model. So we take into account things that are older already have damage and they have costs that are associated with. And then we split out just what is more the climate induced uh, charges. So the dollar amounts that you see are uh, co- climate change induced costs above and beyond what just normal costs are. And you bring up a great point. Our infrastructure already is in very, very bad shape. Unfortunately, to pay for it, we only have two options. Either there's more public revenue, more taxes, which people don't like, or the federal government's going to have to come in with money, which there's no indication that that's going to have. So, we can't keep doing this forever or things will just fall down around us. At some point, we've got to pay for this.
0: Okay, we have just about a minute left, so maybe for a final question, uh Perhaps the U.S. federal government, at least in the next couple of years, will not take a leadership role, but there are many powerful parties meeting in Poland right now for COP24. If you put your optimist hat on, what is the best possible outcome that you can see from that meeting?
1: I think the thing that we can all hope for is in the U.S., the lo- local states, counties, They're going to pick up the slack and they're going to say, this is a problem. We can deny it. We can put our heads in the sand. But the fact is, on the ground, we have to do something. And so my optimist hat is places like Boulder are going to keep being leaders and show the rest of the country that you can take a stand. You can do something. We're going to fix it. And people can deny it, but we're going to do something.
0: Thank you. Paul Chinowski, a co-author of the chapter uh, of the chapter twelve on transportation infrastructure of the Fourth National Climate Assessment, he is the director of CU Boulder's Program in Environmental Design and a professor in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering. His research focuses on costs, adaptations, and infrastructure impacts related to climate change. The full report of the National Assessment on Climate Change can be found on the World Wide Web at the website globalchange.gov. We will post a link with this story on the How on Earth website. That's all. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Tom Waits. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.